Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Hope you're well. Boy, it is a great day today. I was just live with my buddy Hugh Hendry, and now we got Doomberg. Doomberg, welcome to the show, my friend. Man, George Hughes, uh, one of my favorites, and uh, what a what an honor to follow his act. I mean, um, Hugh and I have talked offline about about his content, and a really great guy, and and really interesting thinker. And so, uh, congrats on the scoop. Good, good gotta have. Yeah, interesting is uh, an understatement regarding our, <laughs> our prior conversation. That that really blew my mind. But let's get into some stuff that you've been writing about recently. And everywhere in the news, I've been reading about, um, is it fusion? Fusion, yeah. Fusion, yeah. fusion, fusion. Like there was some massive discovery that we've been trying to crack this nut for like decades and it's just never happened. And then all of a sudden, last week, something huge happened. So is this legit or is it kind of a nothing burger? It's actually both. Um, and I'll take a second to explain, perhaps, for those that are less familiar. Um, fission is the standard way in which nuclear power plants are operated today. And fusion um, has always been this sort of sought-after breakthrough technology. And and the differences between fusion and fission, according to the fusion proponents, is that um, you can create basically limitless carbon-free energy without any radioactive waste uh, and right. without the risk of a, of a reactor meltdown. Um, but as we argued in the piece we put out yesterday called A Time for Choosing, um, the severity of those risks are wildly exaggerated by radical environmentalists who are essentially anti-human uh, Malthusians. And um, this has been the result of a 50-year-old propaganda campaign directed at nuclear fission, which is the incumbent technology. The latest reactor designs, which we could choose to implement tomorrow, are effectively inherently safe, produce very little nuclear waste, all of which is totally manageable. Um, these risks have been wildly overblown. And one of the reasons why you'll see virtually every sort of nuclear expert, say, on FinTwit, um, roll their eyes when they see a headline um, that, that came out of, you know, uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab um, is because by its very nature, in order to uh, accentuate the the alleged impact of this fusion breakthrough, you have to amplify the perceived, um, uh, you know, uh, negative associations with nuclear fission, but those are made up. And so um, the net result is it's still decades away. It will be used by environmentalists to further postpone uh, much needed nuclear reactor technology implementation that we could do today. And, uh, and so in many ways, uh, these types of headlines frustrate people that spend a lot of time in the industry because they know the proliferation of safe, clean, carbon-free nuclear power is not a science problem, it's a political problem. And these types of headlines only exacerbate the political challenges because they'll say, hey, um, why build new fission reactors today when we could just wait for fusion? It's going to be so much better. And then, as we said in the piece, by the time it gets around to becoming uh, economically implementable, the very same environmentalists that have destroyed fission will concoct fake reasons to oppose fusion. And the Greenpeace and the Sierra Clubs and the Friends of the Earth will be out there protesting against fusion for some made-up reason that we don't know today. Um, and they will basically be like the thumbnail of our piece, you know, Lucy with the football, uh, with Charlie Brown. Um, so uh, anybody who thinks that this breakthrough is somehow a panacea for humanity um, has not spent much time uh, in and around the nuclear power industry. Yeah, because I think you hit the nail on the head that at their core, they're 
in my opinion, most of them aren't really concerned with climate change. They're more so concerned with reduce reducing. I'll I'll keep it kind and say reducing population <laughs> growth. I was going to say reducing yeah. population, but <laughs> well, I'll I'll be less kind um, <laughs> uh, as we open the piece, and I'll read the opening sentence. Um, when we have occasion to remind friends and family that anti-nuclear movement uh, was created by a group of radical environmentalists who were fundamentally anti-human, and here's the killer mm. line, as in they were actively and specifically working to have fewer humans living on the planet. That's um, absolutely right. Yeah, if people um, go back and listen. You know, for, for those of you who watch my video, you might have seen this, or my videos, plural. But for those of you who haven't, go back just to YouTube and, and watch the... Uh, limits to growth. It's it just there's a YouTube video on that paper from the Club of Rome in 1972, and just it's like a three minute, four minute video. Just watch that, and they they just actively come out and say that we need to reduce the population. You need to just have one kid. You need to, um, you know, that's like your moral duty, right? And th look, these people believe that um, the Earth is resource limited, and yeah. at some number of humans, it is. I would argue it is many orders of magnitude more humans than we currently have today. Um, and they are techno pessimists. So they are basically shorting the future uh, innovation capabilities of the human race, um, which history shows is a foolish bet. And, um, and there's also no reason for us with enough technical development that we need to be um, confined to one planet. And so, um, and as we say in the piece, um, our answer to such people is you first. Um, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, um, they, they, they are self-pardoned from the category of, quote, too many. We have too many yeah. humans. Okay, you first. Um, I am going yeah. to um, try my best to provide as good a lifestyle for my friends and family as possible. And um, if you would like fewer people on the planet, then there's um, certainly something you could do about it directly. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think in Canada, they're trying to. <laughs> turn it into something where if you do go first, you're going to be turned into a mar martyr, but yeah. that's a completely for another day, different yeah. topic. Yeah. So let me go back to a conversation I heard with Brett Weinstein and someone that's a, a, a famous proponent of nuclear. Is, is it Michael Schellenberg? Is yeah, Michael Schellenberger is the okay. famous substacker, and there's a few other big names in the space as well, but he's written. And, and, I, I and think it work. was a conversation between two of them. And on on nuclear energy, and uh, I'm a real big fan of Brett, so I was very curious to hear what their back and forth would be, and what uh, Brett's opposition to nuclear. You know, he was kind of playing that side of the debate. Sure. And one of the things that he mentioned, I think, his biggest sticking point was the uh, radioactive nature of the uh, the nuclear waste or, or the the waste that is a result of uh, uh, this type of energy being produced and he said it is true that you can put it under rocks or hide it under mountains or do all these things and it gives you like a thousand years he said but if if there is a problem and although it's a very low probability that there is a problem he said it could basically melt down half the earth that's just nonsense so i, mean, it, I think gibberish. he used he, he used <laughs> the example of um uh, uh was it fukushima in japan and he said that the, the, the water was rushing into the reactors and something happened, like something lucky happened to where the water was diverted or something like that. And if, the, and if you would not have had that luck, 
then that disaster would have been like a hundred times worse Look, George, or something. We, we dropped nuclear bombs in World War II. And for decades, we tested nuclear weapons on a massive scale. Okay. Like, what are we talking about here? We're talking about one nuclear reactor. This, again, I, I, don't, I didn't hear what he said. And so I don't want to criticize um, a recollection of what he said. So forget about what he said to Michael Schellenberger. Let's just take a step back and talk about nuclear waste. We published a piece on October 27th called Angels on a Pin, where we addressed this issue pretty thoroughly. Um, and, you know, the, the social preview for the piece, because you get to select the social preview. Um, let me pull it up here while, while I have it with you. Um, is basically that um, this is just all malarkey. Um, mm -hmm. that, like, okay, there are no solutions in life. Right, only trade-offs. So here's the, the social preview. Nuclear waste alarmism is fashioned from exaggerated myths meant to rob humanity of carbon-free energy. And I stand by that statement 100%. Um, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. So if you believe in climate alarmism and you think CO2 emissions are going to destroy the planet and um, cause you know uh, catastrophes for our right. future generations, right. that's on one side of the scale. On the other side of the scale, you can fit the entire amount of nuclear waste ever produced by the industry on a basketball court. And I think, you know, a couple of meters high, 10 or 20 meters high for the U.S. I think I heard 50 meters for the world. Um, we can manage that as humans. The grand total of people who have died from nuclear waste exposure, I believe, is still zero. How many people have died drilling for oil? How many people have died in coal mine accidents? Um, we use slave labor to make most of the solar panels in the world today out of China. Like there are trade-offs for all of these things. And, and the industry has failed in its propaganda, in its defense against offensive propaganda. Like what it's, you, it's, it's what a manageable you, risk. What, what do you think the best argument against nuclear is? If I, if I said, I, we're doing a debate and I'm going to make you take the other side. Yeah. Uh, there really, I mean, honestly, there isn't any. Um, the argument against it is, um, I'll, I'll come up with one. The population has been so ruined in its perception of the technology that the effort it would take to get the politics right um, means it won't get done in time. Mm. That, that's about as good as I could come up with. Physics, there are no arguments against it. Like literally, here's a perfect example. Yucca Mountain, the big controversial, you know, um, long-term storage proposal that Harry Reid famously killed on his way out of the Senate. Um, was actually a huge mistake on the part of the industry. It was so overdesigned, and it was so infant like the risks were so reduced, like like ten nines, you know, um, that it created the impression that there must be a real problem if the industry is willing to go to such lengths to solve it. Mm. Um, it 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 boomeranged on them from a perception perspective, and the whole point is nuclear power is losing the perception war. You see, um, so when people again. Our view on nuclear waste, again, not to personalize it with the people that we mentioned earlier, I'm just going to generalize it. Um, if you think nuclear waste is a real problem, you are either most likely a victim of propaganda or, in the worst case, a knowing um, propagandist. Like, it is literally just a solved problem. The yeah. humanity can't handle um, the minuscule amounts of nuclear waste. The, the energy density of uranium fuel is so high that a pellet the size of your thumb has more embedded energy than a ton of coal. Hmm. Like we know how to do this. We could we could shoot it into outer space if we wanted to. Fire it at the sun. Like it, it it's not. It is 
totally solvable. Um, well, what would you say to the argument? And I've I've talked to my good friend Art Berman uh, about this, and he's an oil specialist. Sure. And he says that that nuclear, it, although it's interesting, it doesn't completely solve the problem because only about eighteen percent of our energy needs, and May's just talking about the United States, is electricity. He goes, yeah, what What do you do for everything else? So, a couple things. Great question. Um, it's closer to probably 20 to 25 in the developed world. Um, there's no question that um, industrial heat um, is also a big significant energy drive. Um, and the newest, again, so one of the, here's sort of a classic sleight of hand. So when you talk about meltdown risk, you have the existing reactor fleet like the Fukushima's versus what we could build in the newest generations, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then when you talk about um, industrial heat needs, there's what traditional fission reactors in operation today can do, which is limited, versus what you could do with generation four and plus type new reactors that are designed for that purpose, you see? So that's the sleight of hand. We are arguing about incremental investment. So for example, I would be for um, if the population was, was uh, can, you know, if it was a conducive thing you could do politically to replace all of our existing nuclear fleet with even more advanced and safer nuclear reactors that could also produce higher grade industrial heat and so on. Um, nobody's saying that, well, I'm certainly not saying lots of people are fantasizing that you could somehow get to net zero. Um, our belief is if you have accepted the challenge of the following equation and maximizing it, the total standard of living that we could spread across all humans divided by our carbon emissions. That is the optimization that we wanna do. That means standard of living higher is better, carbon emissions lower is better. You wanna drive one low, you wanna drive the other high. That is the trade-off. There are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. Okay, if that is our trade-off, the easiest thing we could do is replace the vast majority of electricity with baseload power um, provided by nuclear, 92% capacity factor, um, very safe. And that's, you know, when we talk about the hundreds of billions of dollars being wasted in the Inflation Reduction Act and Germany's energy debacle of hundreds and hundreds of billions of euros for, you know, um, solar and wind that are capacity factors in the teens on average for the year and practically zero during the dark times, um, we, that's an opportunity cost. that They could have not shut down their reactors. They could have built the newest generation reactors and so on and so on. But nobody's proposing that we should put giant batteries and diesel trucks in our mines, you know, like if you just preserve the fossil fuels for where they have both the highest utility and the biggest barrier to replacement. But you start, you know, uh, with the easy stuff first, like we could electrify, um, uh, we could, we could make most of our electricity from nuclear, and then we could uh, propagate battery hybrid cars, for example, where you reduce 90% of your, of your driving needs on a 20 kilowatt hour battery. Um, it's a perfect example of optimization. Let's pivot to electric vehicles. Um, you could take a 100 kilowatt hour battery and put it in a Model X, and you could replace 100% of one driver's fossil fuel use. Now, they'd still be plugging into the grid, but in our world, nuclear power would be providing that power, so that's basically carbon-free, okay? Mm. Or you could take that 100 kilowatt hour battery pack, divide it in five, and give five people a plug-in hybrid where 90% of their fossil fuel use is diminished. Um, five times 0.9 is greater than one, right? And so uh, if battery materials are gonna be our rate limiting step, which they are, you have to manage to that, to that limitation. Mm -hmm. And so um, instead we have governments all over the world mandating that we use 100% uh, BEVs, 
We don't have the batter materials for it. Um, at the same time, they're basically choking the grid and forcing intermittency right, on the grid. Right, right, so right. if you look at California, like three weeks after they banned the internal combustion engine at some future date, they had to ask people who owned electric vehicles to stop charging their cars because the grid was unstable. Yeah. All of this is totally predictable. Like physics will not be denied, right, George? And so, <laughs> um, so in my world, we would um, nuclearize the grid and um, we would smartly begin to replace fossil fuels with the existing constraints that we have in an orderly way, kind of like um, going down the cost curve, you know, like well, what is the biggest wedge for the cheapest amount of money? Um, so for example, replacing um, light bulbs with, uh, with LEDs was smart. Lighting is a huge carbon footprint drag. Um, and while the bulbs aren't quite as good, they're pretty good and they are way, way, way less of an energy drag. Um, they're more efficient in converting electricity into light. Whereas with incandescent bulbs, you get a lot more heat. Um, people could better insulate their homes, white roofs. Like there's all these very easy things we could do to reduce the carbon footprint. Um, but what happens is politically, we get stuck on two or three sub suboptimal answers as the answer, and we only all drive right. that. So in this case, it's solar, wind, and electric vehicles. That's it, and batteries. Um, that's the answer. Even yeah, though right. you know it can't work physically, like it, there's just not enough battery materials in the world, for example, to to, to convert solar and wind from intermittent to base load. And there's not enough battery materials in the world to electrify a meaningful portion of our transportation sector. There just isn't. And by the way, the very same people who are for those technologies are the strongest voices in opposition to the development of the mines needed to get the minerals needed to electrify everything. Like good luck getting a new mine uh, permitted in Maine. It's never gonna happen. Yeah, right. It just makes you wonder why on or what these people are thinking. I, I get the politicians. They're either stupid or evil, sometimes both, but they could be stupid. They could be <laughs> ignorant. Yeah. But, you know, the, the like the global elite types that are that are pushing this, they have to understand I that, don't know. that this is not doable. I mean, and I, uh, yet they still continue to push it. It's just this big question mark. I mean, I have my theories, but uh, I think there's a, a small group of header. people. A small group of people who know precisely what they're doing, but the vast majority of people think they're doing well. And it's, it's, I, I'm still, a, I want to live in a world where the incompetence hypothesis uh, wins out over the evil hypothesis. Yeah, but I mean, they could just listen to you for five minutes. It's not a complex reason why, you know, having uh, all electric cars is not doable by 2030 or 2035. I mean, that's, that's just simple. And if you do want that, you're going to have to dig more holes in the ground, which yeah. do you do? That, that, that's, it's yeah. not rocket science. But luckily for us, there's never a shortage of things for us to write about. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it makes yeah. great fodder for our substack. Yeah. So. Well, let's move on to the next topic du jour here. I've been hearing about Binance. We had CZ go on CNBC yesterday and basically strike out. Um, yeah. I know you have looked into this extensively with what has happened to FTX. So what are your views as to maybe FTX or what's going on with Binance? Yeah, you know, to be clear, uh, we haven't done much original reporting in this regard. We have tried to help our friends um, and amplify their work through our own Substack and through our social media. We are not um, crypto experts, but we are sort of um, careful observers of people like you and and you know, uh, how stories such as these run their arc. And um, ultimately, um, we're going to see what happens with Binance in the next few days. Um, but it, it, it looks like a traditional sort of confidence scheme um, on its last legs. Uh, and I don't know why. Um, well, first of all, I'm a no-coiner. 
because I've never owned a cryptocurrency, wouldn't know how. Um, but like you, I, I observed and participated in the global financial crisis in 08, 09 and, and various other manias. And you watch the sort of the bubble cycles and things like that. Um, his performance on CNBC was um, interesting, uh, we'll put it that way. The echoes of FTX are all over the place here, right down to um, the fact that they have their own sort of FTT, right? This, this Binance coin. Yeah. Um, and and they always talk about their proof of reserves without really talking about their liabilities. Um, they're, they're, um, the auditor that gave them their proof of reserve attestation just froze all work that they're doing in crypto and removed the copy of their attestation letter for Binance's reserves from their website today. I saw that. Um, these are not, you know, in the post Celsius, Luna, Trieros Capital, FTX, Genesis world. Um, Voyager, why you would have a significant portion of your wealth on any of these exchanges, unless you absolutely had to, because you were, you know, laundering, um, it, it's beyond me. Like who's trusting anybody in this field? Yeah, this maybe point? that's the best question. Like, like how does he have anyone's money right now? And I'm talking about Binance, like, like who? Well, same with Bitfinex, right? I mean, there's, there's still two very large exchanges, um, out there where people have their funds custody. And, um, you know, in a way, this is a, a replay of the global financial crisis without the buyer of last resort. Like we are observing what would have happened if the feds didn't step in and bail out AIG as a backstop for the rest of Wall Street. So mm -hmm. in the financial crisis, you know, they used AIG as the sort of, uh, they glued that domino to the floor so that all the other dominoes on the other side of it wouldn't fall. Uh, there's nobody stepping in to do that here. And so we're going to see a complete wipeout. And we're going to see the complete uh, contagion that we, the feds intervene in and at least delayed uh, in 0809, perhaps indefinitely, um, which is a couple of make raises a couple of interesting questions. You know, we had our doom zoom for our pro tier subscribers earlier this week, and it was a 2023 predictions presentation that we delivered. And um, we we expressed in that that uh, presentation that there will come a point where even we would be interested in purchasing some Bitcoin. <laughs> We're not there yet. I think we need to see Binance and Tether resolved. Um, for the sort of contagion wave to wash through. But the things that survive a wipeout like this often make for very interesting investment opportunities. Um, we're nowhere near there yet. And I think for the record, like Bitcoin could explode higher if something like a tether were to collapse as people rush to exchange their tethers into Bitcoin because they believe it is a, a more real thing. Um, so Bitcoin as priced in tethers could explode. Um, so we're not here to say that Bitcoin is, you know, uh, is going down or, or going up. We have no idea which direction it's going to go. Um, but Binance looks to be in about the fifth or sixth inning of, of the FTX baseball game here. Um, that we're being. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out rebel capitalist pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com 
forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. What do you think? Uh, that's my personal opinion, just observing the situation and, and um, you know, uh, relying on pattern recognition, but I don't know what your views are. Well, I understand a lot about macro mm -hmm. and I understand a lot about the global monetary system. Uh, and I understand a lot about very esoteric things that, that most people really don't understand, but I don't know a lot of the basics. Like, I don't really understand these uh, sophisticated corporate balance sheets. I, I don't under, I've never really looked into how these exchanges work. So I, I, I just don't really have an opinion. It just, it's like you though. It seems like every single thing that FTX did or SBF did, um, CZ is, is pretty much doing the exact same thing. I mean, he, he set up a fund to try to bail out all of these crypto businesses that were going bust. I, I, I haven't heard anything about that in the last yeah. couple of weeks. Where, you know, where was this $2 billion fund that he was trying to set up? And isn't this like deja vu? It was just, huh. we saw this like four months ago. And if, if SBF did it uh, to uh, you know, prop up the industry, because he know, knew that if the industry went down, it would blow a hole in his balance sheet and he'd be bust. I mean, it, I think it's reasonable to just consider CZ may be uh, doing the same type of thing here. And uh, then another thing that's really weird about that is I remember reading an S uh, CNBC article. I think it was on uh, this group that did this kind of faux audit. And they said that, they, that the guy they were talking to, the COO or something like that, he couldn't tell them what the parent company was. Like he just didn't even know. I'm like, how? how? So, and again, you know, it's like that, uh, that Twitter spaces we were on the other night. And I was just saying, I, I don't understand how you could not have an adult in the room when it comes to your accounting. And then sure enough, you know, what was it yesterday, the day prior, when the, the current CEO is testifying in front of Congress, and he says they're actually using QuickBooks. And I'm like, exactly. Yeah. Like, <laughs> this is a big red flag here. Yeah, so here's the thing. As harsh as um, FBS, as um, Sam Bankman Fried's critics were in advance of the collapse, um, and there were many who called this, you know, the, my, my friends, um, Dirty Bubble Media and, um, and Bitfinex, and pick your favorite, you know, Crypto Critics Corner, you know, Bennett and um, Case Tomlin, uh, Bennett Tomlin, and, and um, I, I forget his name, but you know who I'm talking about. Um, Nobody would have imagined in their wildest dreams how big of a fraud it actually was. Like from the beginning, right? When you read the indictment of Sam Bankman-Fried, and if, and if people um, haven't, um, they they absolutely should because it's staggering. Like zero internal controls. Yeah. Um, you know, basically stealing customer money from the beginning. Um, it, it was it's unbelievable. Like and and. Now that we've seen it, we've kind of normalized it. But if you would have accused Bankman Fried of having done that before the thing collapsed, oh, you would have been labeled a, you would have been labeled a, a, a tinfoil hat guy, right? Mm -hmm. And truth was worse. Um, Case mm -hmm. Piancy is his name. I the Bennett's co-host on Crypto Critics Corner. I wanted to make sure I got his name out there, Cas Piancy. And um they they 
they've been on this for a long time. They are the ones who deserve the work. As I said earlier, we've done very little original research. It's people like Dirty Bubble Media and Bitfinext and uh, the Crypto Critics Podcast and pick your favorite, you know, dozen other people on, on Twitter that have been chasing this down. <clears throat> so congratulations to them. But I bet you if you push them, they would say that the level of actual fraud so far exceeded what they thought was going on that it's it's mind-boggling right so on that note i do think there is something big going on behind the scenes simply due to the fact he was arrested the night prior to having to testify in front of congress and i, I so and again i don't really know how these things work so i assume that they arrested him to make sure mm. that he testified. And then I found out that, no, he can't testify. I'm like, what? This is I, the complete opposite of so, what you would want to do. And it makes me it makes me think there's someone that didn't want him to testify because they were very afraid of what he might say because he's obviously such a loose cannon when you look at you know him going on Twitter spaces and doing all the media. Well, I would say the last thing you said proves that the first thing you said isn't really all that important. This guy was all over the place and answered all manner of questions in ways that appear to me as a non-attorney to have incriminated him. I'm not sure what more he could have said in front of Congress that he didn't already say on countless live spaces. Basically went on every interview request that came in and, you know, just beginning with his DM exchange with that box reporter. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think that was a bit of political grandstanding on the part of Maxine Waters, not that she's ever been known to do that. Um, and I, I think that that's probably mostly a nothing burger. I think um, that the Southern District of New York uh, wasn't worrying about sinking its schedule uh, to that of Congress. And I think uh, that's just a mild coincidence that people have jumped on. I, I wouldn't read too much of that myself. Mm. Um, I think this guy did probably 25 interviews. And if you look at those transcripts, I mean, literally saying, well, we had people sent money to Alameda because, F, uh, you know, FTX didn't have banking. Like you're basically admitting to wire fraud. Um, and he, he would just casually say that. Or he would say, yeah, like when you were transacting in Bitcoin and FTX, um, there wasn't actually Bitcoin there. We just created these entries in your in your journal. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, I remember I, I listening to that in a space and tweeting, oh, my God, like, I can't believe what I just heard. You were I think you were on that space, actually. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't think he would have said anything different or more incriminating in front of Congress that he didn't already say in front of George Stephanopoulos and um, uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin at that New York Times deal book event. But do you and, think he would have incriminated other no, people like no. politicians and whatnot? No, I think he's so far out of it. Like he could have done that on the spaces. Why wouldn't he have? Um, you know, I, I honestly think, I don't know. I, I don't want to be a psychologist, so I'll, I'll be careful. But um, there comes a point where you begin to believe what you're saying, you know, like he, I honestly believe he genuinely thought he could talk himself out of it, uh, out of the trouble he was in. And that like, uh, you know, a friend of mine who's a little closer to his age and generation said in his mind, um, he's just playing a video game and he'll just get a restart, you know, like uh, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA select start. He's going to get 25 more lives, you know, like he's just going to be able to reset, blow it, blow on the Nintendo disc, and get another go at the game. I didn't think he. Re I, th I think I don't think he realized until very late just how much deep personal trouble he is in. Like if you read the indictment, it's if, if there were betting odds on over under of number of years in jail, and you put the over under line at 
30 years, I'd be betting on the over. Really? Um, it's pretty bad, George. I mean, I, I'll send you the PDF when we're done. It, it, uh, it doesn't, read, doesn't read very good. You know, well, and you and I lead, like, it just, it's such contrast to our personal lives. Like, I, I tell the story. I had to wire money internationally to a family member because they had a health issue, and I was helping them out. And um, the amount of hurdles and checks and forms and phone calls that I had to do to wire a relatively modest amount of money mm -hmm. overseas made you feel like it's not your money. It's very clear when you go to your bank account that you go to your bank here domestically in the US, you know, the number of controls they have on law-abiding citizens when it comes to wiring money, especially overseas, is, is astronomical. And this guy's flinging billions of dollars around, you know, uh, oh, I don't have a bank account for FTX, so we'll just have people wire it to Alameda. Like, how does that even happen? Who, there's going to be a secondary scandal here for all of the U.S. banks that participated and enabled this. Like, you, you do business overseas. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, maybe I just have a particularly careful bank, but um, I don't get the sense that that's my money and they treat it as such when I go to the bank and I want to wire some of it overseas. Um, and, and compare that with what he's been accused of doing. Um, it's so far out of, again, like uh, it, the know your customer AML that we all submit to is so thorough that it's unfathomable to me that he got away with what he did for as long as he did. It's crazy. Hmm. What do you think? I mean, I'm, I'm just, as you're saying that, I'm just, it's going through my mind is, when you go through these bear market cycles and these bull market cycles, which inevitably end in hysteria, you see a lot of it. It's, it's this, this crypto is just the latest rendition of this. You can go back to the 1800s and the railroads. Sure. Wildcat bankings. Yeah. Yeah. Everything in between here. And I'm thinking that, okay, we're, the, the tide is going out, but it's probably not all the way out. When, when you listen to the Fed, you know, take their little dot plot or whatever it is and say, okay, now the high water mark is 5.1% or 5.25, something like that. That's what they're projecting. Now, the bond market is saying you're crazy. But let's just assume that they do take rates up to 4.75 or 5%. And let's assume that there's quite a lag uh, th where the interest rates have to filter through the economy. And we're only now seeing the effects uh, with with crypto and some other things of, of what the Fed did, uh, let's say a year ago, right? How does that impact some of these companies that you've talked about for quite some time, such as Tesla? Uh, I, I did a, a whiteboard video and I was just kind of a thought experiment that, um, and, and you just know this balance sheet stuff so much better than I do. But I thought, man, it, it seems like Musk really overextended himself to buy Twitter and Twitter, he's buying a company that doesn't make money or that, yeah. that has made very, very little money and has lost money like eight of the last 10 years. So what happens if the profits go down for Tesla, which we know can happen? They were uh, unprofitable for many, many years. And what happens if the share price goes down by like 75% so he can't just sell stock to plug the hole in Twitter? Could he lose both? And I'm I'm not here to say Elon's great sure. or Elon's bad. I'm just trying to look through the the, the PLs, the balance sheets, and say is this maybe more of a uh, is there maybe a higher potential than the market is seeing here, assuming that the Fed takes rates to five percent and we continue to see the tide go out. Well, let's 
generalize it to be on Tesla and Twitter because that's so polarizing and people automatically, you know, choose their team and, and think and behave accordingly. But if we take a step back and think about it across sort of the market at the macro level, like you talk about, um, you know, we had Jim Grant on as a guest for one of our Doom Zooms uh, for our pro tier. And, and he's been writing about uh, the leveraged loan market and the ongoing decay of the covenants, you know, investor protections that have been stripped out of these covenants time and time again as mm. the as the era of free money has has proliferated. And then you have these whole series of zombie companies um, that cannot generate enough uh, EBITDA to cover their interest expense. And they're going to be facing refinancing risk. And that's when you're going to see now forget about the particular one that you mentioned, but there's a whole legion of such companies. How about you know, Uber? I mean, does well, Uber, Uber, Uber go bust? Um, uh, so we, um, we, the three companies that we've actually written about uh, as sort of the, what we call the super stonks um, at the peak of the uh, of the Reddit uh, phenomenon were AMC, Beyond Meat, and uh, and Uber. And our view is Uber is likely to survive. Um, AMC and uh, Beyond Meat, uh, we suspect will be a reorganization stories in 2023. Not a prediction, not investment advice. But if you look at the bond market, the bond market is pricing, you know, AMC bonds at something like 40% and um, beyond, beyond meat at like 30, whereas uh, Uber's bonds are trading at like eight or 7% yield to maturity. I, don't, don't quote me on any of those numbers. I'm just giving you a rough ballpark. Um, the market is telling us that Uber's probably going to be fine. You know, like one thing about Uber is it produces a lot of customer value, like um, pulling out your phone and getting somebody to pick you up. Um, wherever you are in, let's say, the world that, where, where Uber exists in the sort of large population centers is, for all of its challenges, incredibly valuable. Like it creates a lot of utility. Um, now, how that utility is spread between the customer, the driver, and Uber has always been the big question, but they have a little more pricing power, a little more control over their costs. They also have an enormous amount of information they can monetize, like when you sign up for your terms of service. Um, AMC is a movie theater and Beyond Meat makes you know uh, vegetarian burgers um there's no real moat there um there's no compelling customer value being created so the prospects there um, i think are a lot worse than say at an uber but there are a whole series of companies that were taken private by private equity stripped loaded up with debt and reset out onto either passed on to other private holders or back into the public markets um, that cannot generate enough income to generate the interest rates at the low rates that their current debt is Price that some of these people have floating rate debt, like in the, you know, um, examples we talked about earlier, and, and and so as interest rates rise, if you have floating rate debt, then your uh, interest rate um, automatically resets at levels that you can't afford to pay, or you eventually run into refinance risk where you have you know a note due in 2024, uh, 2023, and uh, it might be struck at four and a half percent or seven percent today, and the market's telling you you have to pay 14 or 12. Right. Um, and so when you that's the time lag that you mentioned earlier, um, the time lag is either the time for floating rate um, mechanisms to kick in or refinancing risk to kick in. And um, ultimately, another thing we talked about in our call last week is the, the risk in the private markets. Um, so beyond just sort of these zombie companies, um, there's all these fake marks of these private enterprises, too, that are cash burners that have been ping pong back and forth between various venture capital firms at slightly higher valuations every, every time they chip in a little bit of money and everyone's marking the entire investment at the new price, um, all that's gonna go away. And um, the real test will be um, for these startups is, is can you generate your own cash? Back to these same companies, like if you can't generate enough cash to pay your interest, 
uh, and you've got a heavy debt load, you're basically insolvent. And uh, for a startup today, what we're seeing in the private markets is um, down rounds um, and uh, fake marks. And, um, you know, most startups fail anyway. Um, but if you're a startup that can produce your own cash um, in order to basically make through this sort of uh, this bottoming cycle, you could be a very interesting investment opportunity when the time comes too. And so, again, in all of these situations, there's risks and reward um, opportunities available for investors for sure. But I do think the primary mechanisms by which rising interest rates, if the Fed keeps on its pace, and I look, I take Chairman Powell's word, he's been pretty consistent. Um, he's done what he said he's going to do. Um, you're going to see the beginnings of breakdowns in some of the sort of higher yield debt markets like leveraged loans and, and these zombie companies that have been spun out from private equity. Um, so Twitter, of course, is a whole different scenario, 13 billion in debt that is sitting on these banks balance sheet. It's a really amazing thing. It's probably the biggest, you know, busted loan syndicate deal, um, ever, but, um, that's just a symptom of the greater sort of market dynamics that we're in today in my view. Just, you, you talk about these private equity funds, just taking the hot potato and just doing something to, you know, increase the perceived value then they pawn it off on some other private equity fund that just tries to find this greater fool. Well, they, they buy it from each other as they mark each other's books up. Right. I mean, so yeah, but it's, it's, it, it's, it's like the exact same thing that was that FTX was doing. It's like the same game. And it's the same thing that people have been doing for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years. And it's just, you've got an entity that isn't worth anything. It has no, it's an FTT token. It, it, it isn't worth anything. But yet you 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 somehow manipulate it through psychology or whatever, and you've got the tailwind of a bull market in hysteria where you're able to keep 90% and then issue 10%. And all of a sudden you 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 create some hysteria around that 10%. It goes up in value. Therefore, since the price is at the margin, the value of everything you own goes up, and you pawn that off on someone else that does the exact same thing. And it's a, and this, it, and it, whether it's an FTT token or a business that creates zero cash flow, it's like the right. exact same game, just different people playing. Yeah, nothing in finance changes. It's just terms, <laughs> uh, you know, terms and 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 language. Um, ultimately, there's a vast chasm between what something is marked at and what cash you could get out of it. And um, <laughs> it's, it's it's just that's a story as old as time. And so this is why, for example, when we've written about cryptocurrencies, um, we always talk about follow the fiat, like how much fiat is in the crypto universe. That's actually how much money you could take out of it. Now, um, you might think that you have $10 million worth of FTT or Binance coin. Um, you have as many dollars of that coin as you can get out of it. In other words, it trades every day. I want to be very clear for the yes. audience here. What you're saying is if you have $10 million worth of FTT token and 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 a thousand dollars trades every single day you don't have anything <laughs> well but if it trades a billion dollars a day you could take your 10 million out tomorrow and the market would wouldn't even hear the burp right right, um, right. so if i have 10 million dollars of uh, sprout physical gold yeah um i probably have 10 million dollars worth of gold because i i know that that security trades with a certain amount of liquidity and ultimately i, I could even redeem um if, if i wanted to um, whereas when you have these magic beans, um, <laughs> you, you have 10 million magic beans. If they're trading at a dollar each, you don't have $10 million. Now, if you could find somebody to give you $10 million in fiat for it and remove it from the system, then you have $10 million. 
Um, and that's the sort of the sleight of hand that that occurs here. Now, look, it's the same thing with the stock market, right? Like you might um, own an awful lot of a penny stock and somehow it gets on Reddit and it, and it explodes higher. And uh, if, if you can sell it into that volume, that's what the whole point of a pump and dump, right, is to create exit liquidity. Um, your stock is only worth what you can exit. Now, if you own Apple, the difference between the mark that you see on your um, broker statement and the amount of money you could get wired to your bank within three days after closing, clearing the trade is de minimis. Um, that's why people like to invest in the U.S. stock market and the treasury market because they're big and they're liquid and you can look at the price on the screen as a pretty good approximation for the amount of U.S. dollars that you could pull out of that asset. Um, and so back to your point about FTT, you know, they float a couple of percent of it. They keep 90 percent on their balance sheet. They wash trade it amongst themselves, cause it to go very high in price and then remark their entire um, dormant. Uh, allocation and then pledge that as collateral for a loan. Yeah, you could see where the, where the game ends um, pretty quickly. Yeah, literally one tweet from CZ was the spark that lit the whole thing on fire. Right, um, I'm going to sell 500 million dollars of my my FTT token, um, and that just caused a panic. And and we found out very quickly how much fiat was actually in this entire operation, and the answer was not much of it. Hmm. It had either been Wasted, stolen, or pilfered. I mean, it, it, so we'll see um, how much is actually recovered. Uh, when we wrote our first piece about um, FTX and its bankruptcy, I believe on the secondary market claims against the company were trading for eight cents on the dollar. I don't know where they are today. Um, the service that provides that is proprietary. I saw a quote in a Coinbase article, I think it was. Um, and um, but that that's the but the markets will tell you you know, what the bid is on those claims. Yeah. Seems like the more sophisticated and more experienced the investor, the more they worry about liquidity. Yeah, um, exactly. And, um, and, and on top of that, um, the more you've been burned by prior cycles, um, the more careful you are about getting involved in the new ones. Um, and I always, anytime I do anything in the private markets, I always focus on cash. Mm -hmm. What is the time to cash flow break even? What are the cash flow levers? Um, you know, if this thing never gets remarked again and has to pay for itself in dividends, what are the prospects? Yeah. Right? Like, you, I, I, it's very, we've all, you, you learn all of this through your own mistakes. Like, if you're investing in something because you believe somebody else will pay you more for it later as the primary means with no backstop and cash, then you are taking a risk and you should just know that and you should understand what that means. Yeah, exactly. Buddy, awesome conversation as always for my viewers who want to check out what you do online. I know your, your articles are fantastic. Your Twitter is great. Where can people find out more about what you do? Yeah. On Twitter at Doomberg T at the letter T as in Twitter to the end of Doomberg. And then, our primary work is published on doomberg.substack.com. We are 100% subscriber supported. Um, very proud of that fact. We have great subscribers. Um, we produce anywhere between six to eight articles a month. Um, pretty steady at that cadence and um, I very much enjoyed it. It's the work of my life and, and thrilled to be here, George. And I know you and I have some fun to do next week as well together. So uh, looking forward to that as well. Yeah, that's right. What he's talking about, guys, is a quick preview is we're going to be having a discussion slash kind of debate, I guess, with Michael Saylor right here on this channel. That's Mondays. 
put that <laughs> on your calendar, uh, one o'clock Eastern time. I think it's pretty much, we're good to go. So, um, just put that on your calendar Monday, one o'clock Eastern time, uh, Doomberg, myself and Michael Saylor and a little bit of a discussion slash debate with Mr. Saylor. We're all very excited for that. All right, buddy. Have a good one. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Talk to you next week.